0: Let's uh, go before the Lord, before the message today. Lord, do please be with us as we study your word, as we take the exhortations that we will give. Let us put your word into action in our lives, in everything we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to the book of Esther. Book of Esther. (laughs) We're going to do the whole thing. As my daughter would say, Reformed Baptists don't do that. Al Al Martin, Al Martin will take eight verses, she says, and he'll he'll do a 32-part study on it of 90-minute sermons, get to the end of the 32 and see that he needs to go to 48. I am not going to do that today. I am preaching this. I am not teaching this. Uh, And besides, to her I say, I'm a Reformed Baptist pastor. I have a dark suit and a beard. That proves it. This sermon is called, Who is Haman? This is one of my favorite favorite books in the Bible out of all the other favorites. This is one of my favorites. A month ago, I preached a sermon with the basic point being, everyone is lying to you. Everyone is lying to you. It doesn't matter if it's a medical authority, a la Dr. Fauci, News channels such as, and I ran through them all, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, CNN, and Fox. They're all lying to you. I was hard on lawyers and judges. Well, duh. I was especially hard on politicians and government authorities. I even came down on clergy, ministers, those who speak for God, and I told you to be Bereans and test what you hear by the word of God. I even told you not to blindly trust what I say. Well, maybe it's because the old policy of trust and verify, but I stand with that. And, and on that note, I'm here with a mea culpa. <laughs> Just after a few short weeks, I have to tell you, I was wrong. Now, I didn't specifically say that you can't believe anything a politician says, but I strongly implied it. And yet, this week, an absolute truth was spoken on the floor of the House of Representatives. Absolutely true. Probably the most true thing that has ever been spoken by Congressman Jerry Nadler. This is the only name I'm going to give you because it was just Thursday. He said this. And... He spoke the absolute truth. They were debating Bill H.R. 5, which is known as the Transgender Bill. And a Florida congressman got up and, with the Bible as his witness, told everything that was wrong with that bill. After he was done, Congressman Nadler stood up, and this is an exact quote and I watched it. I wanted to make sure I saw him say this and it was not misrepresented. I'm going to give you the full quote first. Congressman Nadler stood up and said, Mr. Stube, what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will is no concern of this Congress. Now, that's the full quote. The quote you will hear is God's will is no concern of this Congress, but I'm here to tell you that the words that went before it make absolutely no difference because what any religious tradition ascribes as God's will and that means that if Jesus Christ came down today and said it himself, Congressman Nadler would say, it is no concern of this Congress. No greater truth has been spoken from the floor of the House of Representatives than this. And what is to be said of this is what Paul first said for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and I used this the last time but against the rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places he's talking about Satan and his demons controlling human authorities willing or not Jerry Nadler Nadler excuse me is antichrist I'm not going to say that he has the spirit of Antichrist as that is a distinction without a difference if you have the spirit of God you are of God the spirit of God is God if you have the spirit of Antichrist I'm sorry you're antichrist and I'm not saying the antichrist I am saying you are against Christ. Is there any doubt that that's what that statement means? Antichrist is anyone who is not concerned with God's will, knowingly or not. You don't have to be against God's will knowingly to be Antichrist. God's will is that Jesus Christ have dominion over all creation, and that includes Congress. And with that, we're going to dive into... To another government official who was antichrist. Book of Esther. You may say, How can you be Antichrist in the Old Testament before the coming of Jesus? Well, John 1 1, and you don't have to turn there, you all know it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not. Anything made that was made, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus made all things. Even in the Old Testament, if you were against God's will, you're antichrist. You're anti-God. In chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, and this is the last time I'm going to pronounce that. In Greek, his name is Xerxes, which I can say, Um, and I will use it instead of what's used in my translation of the Bible. Yours might say Xerxes because we're talking here about Hester, whose name was Hadrasa in the Hebrew, but they translated it to Esther in Greek. So one of the names they took from Greek and put it into Hebrew, and I can't pronounce it, and the other one they took from Hebrew and put it into Greek And I can pronounce both of those. Back to Esther 1. Xerxes, after an evening of merriment, which read drinking, um, sends for his queen Vashti to show off her beauty, because apparently she was a great beauty, to show off his beauty to his drinking buddies. But she refuses to come. She does not obey the king. She does not come to Xerxes to show her off before his friends. Some think that it is because she found it beneath her status to entertain a bunch of tipsy men, and some suggest it was because she had recently given birth and was not feeling particularly attractive at the time. Whichever it was, a queen was supposed to appear when summoned, and Xerxes' rage burned against her. She was banished from the royal household And after a time, probably several years, his advisors recommended Xerxes find a new queen. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins in the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and and let the young women who pleases the king be named Queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So, the beautiful young virgins throughout Babylon, throughout Persia, were to be brought to Susa, the capital to be placed in the harem for the final approval of King Xerxes. And it says, now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried with King uh, Jeconia, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. This is bad construction. Mordecai had not been carried away in the Babylonian construction. His great-grandfather had been. Mordecai had only known Babylon. I don't know if any of you knew your great-grandfathers at all. I met one of my great-grandfathers when I was about three. He was 91 at the time. But my grandfather... My great-grandfather, my first uh, the one I'm mentioning now, was born in California in 1866. I never met him. Mordecai never met Kish, and he had known nothing but Babylon. Babylon was his country, just as California is my country, and I know nothing of what uh, where my family lived before then. Mordecai was not a stranger in a strange land but a third-generation citizen. Uh, verse 7 says, He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. Esther was Mordecai's younger cousin. And true to those times when she was orphaned, Mordecai undertook to raise her and raised her as his daughter. The young woman had a beautiful figure, and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her in as his own daughter. I think you can see where this is going. Lonely King, beautiful orphan with a lovely figure, and you know, the more things change, what can I say? Nothing has changed in twenty five hundred years. And if you go back another fifteen hundred years in Bible story, nothing has changed in the last four thousand years. It's something I stress often, when I'm talking to people about the Bible, if they tell me that the Bible was written by a bunch of superstitious know-nothings, I sit here and say, are you kidding me? People 2,500 years ago are exactly the same as us, and we're going to see that today. They didn't have our technology, but that is all that they did not have. They had our intellect, if not more. They had our moral um, reasoning if not greater the great philosophers of the eastern uh, of the western civilization were walking among these people 2500 years ago we might not like their philosophies nowadays but they're still taught and they were walking among these people superstitious peasants the law of entropy that everything winds down from the beginning argues that they are our superiors, being closer to creation. And I don't doubt that for a second. They also knew a hot lady when they saw one, verse 8 through 9. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace, and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women and the young and the woman pleased him and won his favor. I don't know if I covered this, but Esther was a modest young woman. She was kind. She wasn't striving to get things that weren't hers. But she was brought into the palace. It does not say whether she wanted to be a queen. It does not say that this was some kind of desire for her. But when you're ordered by the king, you go. Verse 9 says, And he quickly provided her, this is Haggai, the chief eunuch, with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women in the best place in the harem." So she's given servants. She's given cosmetics. Um, We will see later on that this is, she'll be there for a year um, being fed. So I, I want to know about that, but it doesn't say in the Bible. Being given cosmetics, being given perfumes to get ready to meet the king. And he gave her the best place in the harem. And what that actually means is probably up for conjecture. Uh, But you know, it has to be better than the worst place in the harem. Okay, we'll go with that. So Esther was favored by the king's top man handling the women. Verses 10 through 11 says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, the Jews weren't under persecution in Babylon at this time, but I suspect that Mordecai, as a, an observant Jew, was spoken to by the Lord and said, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. And so she did not. Uh, Mordecai, well, Mordecai probably knew, knew the trouble was coming. And it says every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the women to find out how Esther was doing. Earlier it said that he was sitting at the king's gate. Mere citizens were not allowed to do this, nor to be in the court of the women. Mordecai was some sort of official in the king's palace. We don't know what he was, but he was in a position that most citizens were not in. Verses 12-13 say, Now, When the turn came for each young woman to go to King Xerxes, after being 12 months in the uh, regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young women went into the king in uh, this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So whatever the women wanted, to make themselves more beautiful or to advance themselves in front of the king or for any of these reasons they were allowed to take from the harem when the turn came for Esther the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordiah who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king she asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch who had charged the women advised now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Azra- well, King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Well, Vashti was no longer queen. Vashti had been banished. Vashti, um, to the credit of Xerxes, was not executed. She comes back into favor um, later on, not with Xerxes, but when when Vashti's son, son of Xerxes, takes the throne, Vashti is back where she wants to be. So Esther becomes queen, and everyone lives happily ever after right? wrong this isn't the Hallmark movie channel this is, this is the Bible and there is very little happily ever after in real life so verses 19 through 23 now when the virgins were gathered together the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Esther had not made known her kindred or her people So nobody knew who Mordecai was they didn't know that he was the uh, father per se of uh, Esther Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her for Esther believed Mordecai served Mordecai just as she was when she was brought up by him in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate Ichthan and two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And that doesn't really mean to lay hands on King Xerxes. That meant to kill King Xerxes. There's a plot on his life by the people guarding his door. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai, as opposed to being somebody who should be persecuted, has saved the king's life and did not make a big deal of it. He did what he felt he should do, but of all the king's men, we're going to see, Mordecai was not the one who got the great promotion. It does not say that he schemed his way into favor, but our friend Antichrist received a very high position. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. After, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hammedatha. And advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate. Bowed down and paid paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. Now Haman is about to show himself as the same as every civil servant time has ever known. For he is neither civil nor a servant. He is scheming. He's unforgiving. He's a wannabe tyrant. Mordecai would not bow down to Haman, probably because Haman was an Amalek, uh, the cursed enemy of the Jews. So so Haman, and it was nothing personal. It was Jews hating the uh, Amalekites. Verses 2 through 5, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, or pay homage to him. Haman was filled with fury. I'm reminded here of a female U.S. senator. She was uh, talking in Congress to a military officer who addressed her as man, which is military courtesy. It's right up what they're supposed to say. And she icily ordered him to address her as senator because she had earned that title. She was not ma'am. She was senator. Every little Haman in a bureaucracy wants their due honor. Verse 6 says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the kingdom of Persia, of uh, Xerxes. As popular culture would say, that escalated quickly. He went from being mad at Haman, I mean being mad at Mordecai, to plotting to kill all the Jews in Persia over a perceived insult. And maybe it was an insult. So Haman concocts a plan and brings it before Xerxes. Verses 8 through 9. Now, Xerxes is a big king. I don't know how much he was paying attention to what's going on here or how greedy he was, but Haman says, uh, then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king... Let it be decreed that they will be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Now, they do not actually say where Haman was going to get this 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents was two-thirds of the revenues of the Persian Empire for any given year. So it's a huge, huge amount of money. Where, did he, where was he going to get that money? Perhaps he was going to confiscate it from the Jews that were destroyed. It doesn't really say. But Xerxes greedily jumped at the offer. He takes off his signet ring and authorizes Haman to use it to write a letter for the destruction of the Jews. So Haman writes a decree that on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew, young or old, women, and children, are to be destroyed, killed, annihilated, and for all their goods to be plundered. Haman does not do things in a small way. Overkill to Haman is good. He will, he will destroy, he will kill, he will annihilate. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 says, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the middle of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. We've often heard of sackcloth. Do you know what sackcloth was? I didn't really know until I read this. Rough garment. Rough garment made out of goat skin, hair side in. It's itchy. It's uncomfortable to wear. You were supposed to be Suffering, or you were supposed to be showing your penitence. Now, Mordecai could not enter the king's gate because he's wearing sackcloth. So he sat outside in mourning. Now, Esther hears about this. Now, remember, Esther and Mordecai are not talking. Esther is in with the uh, harem. Mordecai is on the outside. And so Esther doesn't know why he's in, in sackcloth. So she sends out some fine garments for him to put on. Verses 5 through 7. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's units who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out uh, to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him what had happened to him. Now, the hatred of the Jews... In Persia is not universal. Well, you will notice that not only Hathash, but the uh, servant girls who we assume were uh, regular Persians, are not on the side of Haman. they're they're on the side of being go-betweens to Mordecai and uh, Esther. And here comes the passage that everybody knows, but I want to put a different slant on this passage, verses six through sixteen. Mordecai also gave Hathach a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And They told Mordecai this, what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think, and listen to this part, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now think about that. I was talking about the Christians at the time of uh, this Chinese coronavirus uh, not obeying the dictates of the government and people are bringing up Romans 13. Obey the appointed authorities. And Haman is telling you, and he's telling you, and when I said that, that God will deliver his people. We know all things work together together. For those uh, who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. But Haman is here in God's word saying, if you do not go into the king, God will save his people. Just as in today, God will save us. But if we do not stand up, that doesn't mean that we're going to be part of the one saved. And he says to Esther, if you do not go in, God will save his people but you in your father's house will perish. Those are tough words. Relief and deliverance will rise from another place because God's word will be done. Mordecai was convinced the Jews would be spared, but those too cowardly to act would perish. So Esther dresses in her royal robes, Goes out, stands in the court in front of the king's quarters where she can be seen. And Xerxes sees her and he raises his scepter to her, sparing her life. Not only sparing her life, but he said he would grant any request of hers up to one half of her kingdom, his kingdom. But all she asks for is to prepare a feast for Haman and Xerxes, for them alone. Chapter 5, verse 9, and I'm not really skipping much. They don't say much about how Haman got this news, but Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Once again, even in his greatest triumph, just the simple seeing Mordecai sitting in the gate fills Haman with rage. But he consoles himself by going home and gathering his friends and his wife about him and then bragging about his riches and the number of his sons and the job promotions that have raised him above all the other officials. And servants of the king, verse 13 says, Yet all this is worth nothing, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Nothing is going to help him but killing Mordecai. Not all the riches, not all the acclaim. He is going to get rid of Mordecai. If that's not a little bit antichrist, if that's not a little bit satanic, I don't know what is. So... Haman and his wife and his friends decide to build a gallows, 50 cubits high at 75 feet. The whole town can see the top of this gallows. It's it's visible from everywhere in the capital. And chapter 6 says, On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded his threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for, uh, for him. And the king said, who's down in the court right now? That's not that's a paraphrase, but who's down there? What official is out in the court? Now Haman had just entered the the inner court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged. I think we have a case of bad timing here. Having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him, and the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court, and the king said to him, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man? who the king delights to honor. Uh, This brings us uh, to a passage that proves how what I said about humans not having changed in the last 2,500 years is true. Xerxes asks the open-ended question, what is to be done for the one who delights the king? And Haman, completely self-absorbed, says, "Who who would the king delight to honor more than me? You know, it's me. I'm the one who he wants to honor. Nobody deserves more honor than me. Is that not the response of so many people? Me, me, I'm special. I can see so many of our mediocrities in Congress holding up their hands. That's me. Reward me. So Haman gives Xerxes his counsel. And just listen to the way that Haman views, to what Haman views as a reward, For saving the life of the king. Now listen to this. And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him On the horse, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man in whom the king delights to honor. Okay. So, Haman's idea of a reward is to lord it over the population. Did he suggest uh, a higher position in the government? No. Um, More responsibility? No. No, he wants the hand-me-downs trapping of a king. He wants the hand-me-downs. He wants to wear robes the king has worn. He wants to ride a horse the king has ridden, to have on his head a crown the king has worn, to be led about the city by an official of the king. This is the mindset of all bureaucrats today. Look at me. I'm important. Look at me. Look at where I have gotten myself. I may have done nothing in my life, but look at where I am. And this is Haman. Oh, except for the part of being honored part. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing, nothing that you have mentioned. Okay, things are not working out the way that Haman sees them working out. He's showing up to have... Mordecai hanged now he's having to honor Mordecai so Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him thus shall it be done to the man in whom the king delights the vanity of the man is humiliated by by his own hubris afterwards Haman returns home in mourning and what does Mordecai do after all this After this high honor, verse 12 says, And Mordecai returned to the king's gate. Mordecai just goes back to his business of whatever it is, we don't know what it is, of sitting at the king's gate, but he returns to where he can serve Xerxes. Well, the day's about to go from bad to worse for uh, Haman. Bad to worse to disastrous, actually. In morning he returns home where he tells his wife and friends what has happened and they counsel him and they give wise counsel this time they say if mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the jewish people you will not overcome him but will surely fall before him now before haman can uh, decide what to do the king's eunuchs come in and escort him to the palace verses chapter 6 14 through 7 6 says while they were yet talking, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurriedly brought Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther, and well, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slave men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. This is not working at all. This might be the worst day in Haman's life, I would seem to think. Haman is the man. Queen Esther had never said she was a Jew. Haman had no idea she was a Jew. And suddenly, he's trying to kill the the king's beloved wife, who the king just offered half his kingdom to. Verse 9 says, And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. (laughs) You think? And now, as the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, basically he falls on her bed to beg forgiveness, and the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? a final bit of irony for Haman, his act of humiliation and begging for his life is interpreted by Xerxes as attempting to um, sexually attack Esther. This is Haman's end, not only his, but his son's as well. They're all hanged on the gallows and that he had constructed for Mordecai. His, his All his possessions were given to Esther. Now, Esther pleads to Xerxes for her life and the life of her people. And in a scene worthy of Yol-Brenner and the king and I, Xerxes basically has to say, what I have written, I have written. I cannot change it. It went out underneath my seal. But what he can do and what he does do is promote Mordecai to the top position in his government, his prime minister, if you will. He gives Mordecai the signet ring he's taken away from Haman and says, write what you can. Write an order and see if you can get out of this. So Mordecai writes a declaration that the Jews may defend themselves against the coming attack in any way they want. And on the day that that attack came, 100,000 Persians died. They didn't give up the attack. They went ahead and they attacked. And the Jews killed about 100,000 people. The end. Well, not really. Because God isn't just telling us a little story. An amusing, at points intriguing story about the history of the Jews. Let's get a picture of what we have going on here and see if you can see, see, see a parallel in history. A mighty king was rejected by those he loved, by his wife, and then in turn cut back her off. He created a new queen by taking a beautiful and gracious wife who was not afraid to come to him with her petition, even though it might cost her his life. There were family members that came with the bride, And then there was Satan, Antichrist Haman, trying to bring destruction to the king's family. Does this sound familiar? It brings us to today. There is a great king, we call him the king of kings, who is rejected. He gathers to himself a chosen bride about whom it says that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His bride is made of many of whom he promises not to lose a single one. And opposing all is Satan, Antichrist. Of course, in this analogy, Jesus, Christ, is the King of Kings. The church universal is his beautiful bride for whom he would, and in fact did, die. And all true Christians, elect, chosen by God, even if they don't know that they're elect, but if they're chosen by God, From the foundation of the world are the bride's loving family. And so in this construct, we're only missing one person. Who's Haman? Who is Haman in our world today? Well, Haman, as we've seen, is anti-God, anti-Christ. He is everyone who is against the will of God in the world today. And this is a mighty big list. Will you not agree? I started with a quote by Congressman Nadler. The will of God is not the concern of Congress. Jerry Nadler, therefore, is Haman by his own admission. And I only use his name because of this quote from Thursday that he proudly used. Who else is Haman in this world? If you support, well, the bill that he was arguing against, HR uh, five the transgender bill you 're antichrist. you are not in god 's will. If you support abortion, you are not in god 's will. God says you will not sacrifice your children. If you support homosexual marriage, you are Haman. God says a man shall leave his mother and a woman her home, and they shall become one. If you support the perversion of the courts. Such as we're seeing by the George Soros Attorney General program, which is actually denying justice. You are Haman. If you support any of the degrading anti-god agendas of the world today, you are Haman. Evil is rampant in the world today. It says the devil prowls round like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Mordecai knew this only too well that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth for there is no truth in him. Mordecai in that time of trial said to Queen Esther, who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Christian, there is trouble all about. The church is persecuted in China in Asia, in Africa, the Middle East, and more and more here in North America, in Canada, and in the United States. Were you brought into Christ's kingdom for such a time as this? Of course, if you're a Christian. Are there steps you must take, lines that must be crossed, Ask Masterpiece Cake in Colorado or that florist in Oregon. Must all Christians stand against the Hamans in this world? As Mordecai said to Esther, if you don't, and he didn't use the word God to say, God will find another way to save the Jews. Did you know that God's name is not used in Esther one time? But God is all over Esther. But Mordecai said, if you don't, God will find another way to save his people but you may not survive. Cowardice in the face of persecution is not a winning lifestyle. Ask Haman. Let's pray. Lord, as the forces of Antichrist rise up in this country to persecute Christians, to put a happy face on an evil agenda, let us be strong. Let us know how to stand up, how to resist, how to stay in your will. We know the church can bring our petitions directly to our high priest and our king, and he will hear them. Lord, we pray you will hear our prayers about our country and our world today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.